Our scripture for today is out of the book of James. And uh, if you have uh, your Bibles that you brought with you, or maybe there's Bibles in front of you, you can look up. Uh, or you have your Bible on your phone like I do. I invite you to just look that up and follow along uh, as we read our scripture uh, for today. It is out of the book of James, chapter 3. And it's going to start with verse 13. I'm going to read out of the NIV, uh, the New International Version. I invite you to, to follow along. Mine has a, a title for this section called Two Kinds of, of Wisdom. So if you want to look that up, you can follow along uh, where you're at. Starting with verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such, quote, wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder in every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere, peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. Thank you, Pastor Herrick. And uh, I just want to echo his thoughts on Christmas Eve. We're looking forward to it uh, a week from today and uh, invite you to come and bring your friends, uh, those that, that you can have influence over. And there are those maybe that you don't know that you do, but maybe there's some you can invite you haven't thought about. Encourage you to do that and be here as we conclude this series on Simply Christmas. As we've been talking about this Simply Christmas, we started off with thinking of what we could do less with so that we could have more, how we could get more back to a basic, a foundational, a more traditional maybe Christmas as we used to know it. And we started off with less uh, spending and more giving. And then last week, Pastor Eric was less complaining and more encouraging. And so as we started thinking about what is it that we could use a little less of this Christmas for this third week, kind of got centered on a thought of everything, something that I think we all could agree with, something that we all could agree we need less of or could use less of, and that is this, we could need or have less conflict. Any disagreements? Anybody say, no, I, won't. I just want to pick a fight. You know, that's kind of the way we, we sometimes think. No, we, think, we say, no, I want to have less conflict in my life. You know, it's interesting. You never know where preparing a sermon is going to take you. And as I was doing some of my research this week, I stumbled across this 130-page report that I started just um, devouring and, and understanding it and saying, this is, this is really neat stuff. It's, it's, the, it's put out by the Institute for Economics and Peace. Institute for Economics and Peace. They're based in Sydney, Australia, but they have offices in New York City, The Hague, uh, Mexico City, and other places around the world. And they, every year, publish this study. And this year is the 2017 Global 
Peace Index. And what they do is they, they study the globe and countries and, and the population to see where our, what our level of peace is. And uh, they say that they cover 99.7% of the inhabitants of Earth. And so they have us pretty well covered. And they, they take 23 different indices that are out there that they trust, and they apply them in all of their math and everything they do to determine if our level of of peace has gone up or if it's gone down and what's gone into that and why and depending on where you live. Well, here's the good news. The 2017, of course, we're not through 2017 yet, so this studied 2016. And in 2016, we're told by the Global Peace Index that worldwide that the peace of the world increased 0.28%. The index went up 0.28%. So in 2016, did you feel it? Did you feel that? Well, I feel, I feel more peaceful this year. You know, I, I, I feel less conflict in the world. And so uh, unfortunately, unfortunately, though, that kind of reversed a 10-year trend. In fact, the 10-year trend was that the peace index had been declining. And even at the end of 2016, for the last 10 years, it had declined 2.14%, saying the world was being more conflicted. The world was becoming more violent. And that's, that's bad enough. But then this... Institute for Economics and Peace starts putting it in economic terms. And they say, what is the cost of this violence? What's the cost of this conflict? And to put it in percentages of gross domestic product, they tell us that 12.6% of the world's gross domestic product is basically wasted because of violence. It's the economic cost of violence. 12.6% of the gross domestic product of this whole globe is based and in, in, in devoured by violence. The United States is 8.6%. The cost of violence in the United States is 8.6% of our gross domestic product. That sounds bad. What if you were in Syria? In 2016, it was 67% of the gross domestic product the cost of violence. In Iraq, it was 58%. And we look at that and we say, boy, that's terrible. And and we feel empathy and we feel sympathy. Some of us even to the point where we may give to help alleviate some of the suffering resulting from this violence. And and we we take that, we take it seriously. But for most of us, I'm guessing that's not the conflict that keeps us up at night. That's not the conflict that gives us stress in our everyday life. That's not the conflict that gives us heartburn. That conflict starts a lot closer to home, right? That conflict maybe is in, in your shop or in your office. That conflict might be in your school, in your neighborhood with your neighbors. That conflict might be in the church. It might be in their small group or growth group. Just, just a conflict that's there. And, um, oh yeah, your family. <laughs> you know, um, I looked at a lot of different studies and polls and things over this last week and articles written on what people dread the most at Christmas time. On, not, not, not the first, but high up on every list was getting together with certain family members. Yeah, that's what stresses us out, right? 
That's what gives us. In fact, pa- Pastor Eric last week to illustrate his point brought a jar of M&Ms. If you remember that. Well, I brought something to illustrate my point. <laughs> you recognize the Tums jar? Now, unfortunately, on his jar was full. This is about nine-tenths empty. <laughs> we'll just say I got this out of Pastor Jim's office. <laughs> yeah. Stress. We have stress. We have conflict. And, and we deal with it all the time. So what's, what's the solution to that? If, if, we, if we want less conflict, what do we need more of? And I think the scriptures give us some, a little hint of what we need more of. In fact, more than a hint. And I think it's this. We have less conflict, but, but we need more peacemaking. Notice I didn't say peace. I said peacemaking. Last week, Pastor Eric said, don't be, an encourage, don't be a complainer, be an encourager. And this week, I'm saying, let's ramp that up a little more. And instead of being even more than an encourager, let's be peacemakers. Have you ever thought about what it takes to be a peacemaker? Well, we should because this is the season of peace. In fact, we all know that, um, that the birth of Christ celebrates really the birth of the greatest peacemaker of all. In fact, Isaiah chapter 9, we're, we're told this, for uh, to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the greatness of his government and peace there shall be no end. Isaiah is saying, when this child comes, when this one comes, he is going to take on these names of God, these attributes of God, and they are going to be a wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father. And he says, then there's this, this prince of peace, and it's going to be an everlasting peace. Now, we look at that, and we say, that's great, and I'm looking forward to that. And, but, you know, we have a limited, maybe a too limited understanding based on our English language of this peace. Because we see peace mostly as being a lack of conflict. I, I want to get rid of my conflict, and I substitute it with peace. But to this Jewish audience who would have been reading that scripture, that word peace was a word that you probably know and I know, and it's that word shalom. It's, 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 a, it's a word that's so much bigger and deeper there may be what we realize is peace. Shalom was both a greeting and a farewell. Shalom, when you would meet somebody, and shalom, when they would go. That's the word that is in the Hebrew of this verse here. But it's so much more than a lack of conflict. In fact, if you go looking at, at the definition of the word shalom, peace, as we know it, a lack of conflict, is probably four, five, six down in the definitions of importance. Some of the words for shalom to describe it is a completeness, a wholeness, a fullness, a soundness, safety, health, prosperity, and then finally, peace. This shalom is all of this, both internally and externally. We have shalom internally. We have peace. We have this soundness, this fullness, this completeness because of our maker and our heavenly father 
who gives us shalom. But then we also can have shalom or peace externally with, with others and peace with our friends and our neighbors and, and that peace, that wholeness in our community, in our family. We, we desire that shalom. And so when the Jewish audience would read and say, say, shalom, we want God has come to give us shalom through this baby. This shalom is a very nature of God. In fact, it was one of the names of God. Gideon in Joshua chapter 6 was building an altar to the Lord, and he called it, the Lord is peace, Yahweh Shalom, a name for God. God is a God of peace, and it was in this context that in Luke chapter 2, we have an angel appearing to shepherds, and it says this, suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. Now, I have not been clued in on what language angels speak. I'm sure it's a heavenly language and would, to most of us in most times, be probably unintelligible. But the angel's job here was to communicate. So they communicated some way a message. Whether it was in Greek, probably not, but that's what we've been given in our, our scriptures in the Greek. But they probably spoke Aramaic. But no, make no doubt about it. If these Jewish shepherds, when they heard peace, they heard shalom. They heard God has come to offer completeness and wholeness and fullness Safety, reconciliation. He has come to offer peace. All of that gathered into one. Which brings us to the scripture that Pastor Eric read to us this morning. James chapter 3. Verse 7. Verse 17. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. Those verses that he read just before them described what I would call, and really what James is calling, a false wisdom. There's this false wisdom that people were claiming that they had, but they also exhibited characteristics of envy and ambition. And he was looking at them and saying, this is not wisdom. In fact, he said this is earthly, it's unspiritual, and he even said in that passage, they're demonic. And he says it produces disorder and evil practices. And so when Pastor Eric says there's these two kinds of wisdom, in verse 15, James even puts that wisdom in parentheses. This, quote, wisdom that comes from the world is not wisdom at all. He says if you want true wisdom, verse 17, the wisdom that comes from heaven, and he starts to list these attributes. And he says, first of all, it's pure. He says there's no sinful attitude. There's, there's no sinful motives. It's, it's internal. It's something that is inside. It's pure, this wisdom. But it, it exhibits itself in certain characteristics. 
And these characteristics are exactly opposite of the, of the disorder and the evil practices of the others. In fact, Scripture says here it is peace-loving. Peace-loving. And then he goes on to name attributes that support someone who's peace-loving. I mean, it would be silly, wouldn't it be, if we were reading the scripture and he says, this person is peace-loving, envious, ambition, selfish ambition. No. He says, this person is, is, is peace-loving and they're considerate. They're submissive. They're full of mercy and good fruit. They're impartial. They're sincere. And then he says something that I think we need to just stop for a minute and let our minds wrap around this next sentence. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. Some facts that you know. When you plant a seed, you get back much more than you plant, right? You'd be very disappointed if you planted a seed and outgrew was another seed. No, you want a fruit, you want much fruit, and you want all the seeds that come through that. When you plant, you plant in anticipation of an abundance return. Are we planting in peace? Or are we planting in conflict? There's a there's a thought as we think about this that you need a certain culture or a certain climate to grow what you desire to grow. In my office, there's an orange and a couple of those little oranges. I don't know what you call them. But I, but I, I, I eat some of those every day because they're good for me, but I enjoy them. They're good. I would love to have a couple of those trees in my backyard. I'd love to have a couple of those trees where I could just pick that fresh orange, and if I didn't feel like an orange, I could squeeze it and have fresh squeezed orange juice. But I don't live in a climate that allows that. And what, what James is saying here is when we think about this loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy, good fruit, impartial, and sincere life, we are creating a climate as a peacemaker, where righteousness can grow. And if I would suggest this morning, if, if we're looking at our, at our offices, our places of work, our home, our small group, and, and we don't see a kind of climate where righteousness can grow, then we start to say, oh, do we have the real wisdom, or are we relying on a fake wisdom based on self-ambition self um, and bitter envy and all those other things? If, we don't, if we're not experiencing peace, it's because we have not created an atmosphere, a climate of peace. It's, it's easy. I know it's easy for me to say, I'm, I'm, well, I'm, I'm, peace, I'm a peacemaker. I'm peaceable most of the time. But it's that 5% of the time or 10% of the time where where. I said something I shouldn't say or, or just that little cutting remark comes in or something like that and all of a sudden the climate has changed. And, and if we're trying to create a climate of righteousness, James is telling us be a, be a peacemaker and here's some attributes of peacemaking. Being considerate and submissive and full of mercy and good fruit, 
impartial, and sincere. It takes a climate of shalom, of shalom, in order to create and have righteousness. Jesus calls out the peacemakers in the Beatitudes. Matthew 5, chapter 9, he says this, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. It's interesting, up to this point in time, he's talking about, you know, those who mourn, the pure, the pure in heart, the, the th- hunger and thirst for righteousness, and all of these folks in these Beatitudes. And he, he, he mentions what they will receive. The peacemakers, he says, they're not going to receive anything. They're, he's not saying you're going to be given anything. But he says something maybe even more valuable. He says you're going to be called children of God. When we create an atmosphere, a climate of peace, people notice. In fact, I think when someone creates an atmosphere of peace and reconciliation, I think it's probably not unlikely, according to the scripture, that someone's going to look at you and say, she reminds me of somebody. Or he reminds me of somebody. And that somebody is your father. That somebody is Jesus Christ, who has been the peacemaker for us. And he says, now go and be peacemakers. And when you do that, they're going to call you children of God. That is a call for today, now. It's a call into the future as we gather one day before the throne. He says, you're my child. You've been a peacemaker. Peacemakers are children of God. I want to be a child of God. I want people to look at me and say, steer, a child of God. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes, though, what do they look at when they see us? Child of, hmm. <laughs> Not real sure some days, right? Some days we resemble our Lord more days than others. With this, someone creating a, 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 an atmosphere or a climate of peace is day by day, day by day, being considerate and submissive, full of mercy, good fruit, impartial and sincere, loving peace. Once again, it's Isaiah who, who calls out this child who's going to be coming and his message of peace, but also the cost of that message. It's Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5. And I'm reading from the world messianic version, version that our Jewish Christian friends could well be reading out of today. It says this, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our shalom was on him. And with his stripes, we are healed. He is the peacemaker. But as we know, it was a costly peace. Being a peacemaker is not an easy job. Jesus took the chastisement. That is, he took the punishment of our sins for our shalom, our peace. I think we have a greater appreciation for peacemaking, a greater appreciation for shalom when we compare it to the conflict that this is brought out of. We wouldn't know peace, would we, if we didn't know conflict. 
We wouldn't know what God has done for us if we didn't know the depth of our sins. When God speaks to us, when God comes and heals us and reconciles us to him, he did it jumping in head first. And he sometimes asks us to do the same. Attorney and author, former president of Peacemaker Ministries, Ken Sandy. He says it this way in his book, Peacemaking for Families. Conflict is one of the many tools that God will use to help you develop a more Christ-like character. You know, when we talk about peacemaking, we're not saying we avoid conflict. In fact, we jump in headfirst sometimes. We step in where there is no peace, and we say, I'm here to be a peacemaker. And it's that conflict that to a peacemaker starts giving us that climate where we can bring righteousness, makes us and develops a Christ-like character. And he calls us to do it. In fact, it's 2 Corinthians 5, 18, God has reconciled himself to us through Christ and given us the ministry of reconciliation. We go and we do. One of the great stories of peacemaking in the Bible is found in the Old Testament. It's in the book of 1 Samuel. It's chapter 25. In chapter 24 1 Samuel, David, who had been on the run from Saul, had a chance to murder him. In fact, Saul was laying there asleep. He could have just walked in and no one, had, no, no one to defend him could have taken his life. And he decided, no, I'm not going to do that. I will not do that to God's appointed leader. And so he knew that God would one day take care of Saul, but it was not his to do. So he leaves after a discussion with Saul and he heads out into the desert. While he's there, he camps next to him uh, a man and his wealthy um, cattle and lambs and all that he had named Nabal. Nabal was described in the Bible there as wealthy, surly, and mean. <laughs> you know a few guy, people like that? <laughs> wealthy, surly, and mean. But it didn't make any difference when David was there and his men were on guard. Not only did they care, take care of David and, and his men, but they said, we will guard and watch over and protect Nabal's men and his, his cattle and his crops and all that he has. In fact, the Bible says that not one thing was missing from Nabal's household. In fact, it says they protected him, built a wall around him until one day David needed food. And David sent his messengers to Nabal because he heard he had some sheep and said, please, would you, would you supply us with some food? And Nabal looked at David's men and said, who's this David guy? <laughs> Who is this son of Jesse? Get out of here. Surly and mean. <laughs> that was him. David went back, or the men went back to David, and they told him what happened, and David's anger burned. In fact, he said in, there in verse 25, I'm going to kill every male in the Baal's family. And it said he took 400 men with him. 
to wipe him out. Now, here was, think of this. Here was David who just walked away from killing the man who was trying to kill him, King Saul. He just turned away and said, it's not mine to do. But the guy who denied him a meal, <laughs> he said, that's it. I was hungry. We're going to do away with not only just him, but the men and all of his family. And so he's coming to wage war and to, to destroy Nabal and his family. When at that same time, one of Nabal's men speaks to Nabal's wife, Abigail. And he starts telling her the story of what happened. And saying, I don't know if you know what's going to happen, but it's not going to be good. And it was all over a meal. But you know your husband. Well, the scripture tells us that Abigail went. She quick, it says she wasted no time and quickly gathered 200 loaves of bread Fought two wineskins full of wine, five sheep that had been slaughtered, nearly a bushel of roasted grain, a hundred clusters of raisin, and 200 fig cakes. And she loaded up the donkeys, and they headed out to meet David. Now, that's a meal. <laughs> that's a meal. She met up with David. Chapter 25, verse 25 of 1 Samuel, she said this. Please pay no attention, my Lord, to that wicked man, Nabal. He is just like his name, which means fool, and folly goes with him. As for me, your servant, I did not see the men my Lord sent. She says, I didn't even know what you needed anything. She goes on and says this. Please forgive your servant's presumption. The Lord your God will certainly make a lasting dynasty for my Lord because you fight the Lord's battles and no wrongdoing will ever be found in you as long as you live. Even though someone is pursuing you to take your life, the life of my Lord will be bound securely in the bundle of the living by the Lord your God. But the lives of the enemies will be hurled away as from the pocket of a sling. Here is Abigail interceding, being a peacemaker for her husband who really didn't even want her to be. Didn't even know she was going to do it. A surly, angry man. And she said, I need to step in and I need to bring shalom into this situation. Because it's not just my husband, but it's other men who are going to be killed. It's others who are going to, families who are going to lose the male from their families. I look at her words here. Her words were concern for David, respect for David, honor of David. I see a lot of James 3.17 in Abigail. I see peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy, and good fruit. And this is a good fruit you can eat. <laughs> Impartial, sincere. And God blessed her. In fact, David, in verse 32, replied to her with this. David said to Abigail, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who has sent you today to meet me. May you be blessed for your good judgment and for keeping me from bloodshed this day and from avenging myself with my own hands. Otherwise, as surely as the Lord God of Israel is, who has kept me from harming you, if you had not come quickly to meet me, not one male belonging to Nabal would have been left alive by daybreak. Then David accepted from her hand what she had brought from him 
said, go in shalom, in peace. I have heard your words and have granted your request. An individual who was willing to step in, to be a peacemaker, to take a risk that she would not be accepted, she would not be heard, she could even be killed, and said, I'm going to step in and do what is right out of a heart that's pure. And David, when confronted with a peacemaker, all of a sudden he said, thinking in his own mind, I was going to kill over that little bit of food. Thank you. Thank you for stopping me. Thank you. And David knew he had to forgive. Even though Nabal never asked for forgiveness, Nabal never came to him and probably still didn't care, not knowing what was going to happen. But David says, I will forgive. Ken Sandy writes in another book, The Peacemaker. He says this about forgiveness. Forgiveness may be described as a decision to make four promises. When, when we're caught in a peacemaking situation and, and it comes time to forgive somebody, even if they haven't asked for forgiveness, even if maybe they don't deserve it, but this forgiveness comes and they says, I have four promises to make. I will not think about the incident. I will not bring up this incident again to be used against you. I will not talk to others about the incident. I will not allow the incident to stand between us or hinder our personal relationships. And he goes on to say this, by making and keeping these promises, you tear down the walls that stand between you and your offender. You promise not to dwell on them or brood on the problem, not to punish by holding the person at a distance. You clear the way for your relationship to develop unhindered by memories of past wrongs. This is exactly what God does for us. And this is exactly what he commands that we do for others. God reached out and he offered reconciliation even while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. God reaches out and he offers reconciliation even to those who reject it. You know, in our own personal lives, one of the things we learn sometimes that reconciliation is possible even when resolution is not. And we keep pushing to be reconciled to the person even if we disagree, even if they still hurt us, even if we think they're going to hurt us again. That's what Jesus says when he says, forgive 70 times 7. We may not have this resolved, but we're going to be reconciled because I'm not going to let that wall of hostility be between us. Paul says this in Romans 12, 18, though. It is, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. He said, whatever you can do, whatever you can do, forgive, as Jesus said, 70 times 7. Forgive. But as far as it is possible with you, live at peace with everyone. Make a choice. Be at peace. John Piper once wrote that um, we need to be peacemakers, but that doesn't necessarily mean peace achievers. We can, we can be reconciled but not resolved. He says it's our, it's our job to be peacemakers, but sometimes 
Achieving peace is even tougher. And sometimes it won't happen. But Ken Sandy, one more quote from his Peacemaker book, he says this. It's easier to accept your limits if you have a biblical view of success. The world defines success in terms of what a person possesses, controls, or accomplishes. God defines success in terms of obedience to his will. The world asks, what have you achieved? God asks, were you faithful in my ways? You want to be a child of God? You want to be faithful? Be a peacemaker. James says that peacemaking and creating an atmosphere, a culture of peacemaking brings righteousness. Jesus said being a peacemaker, you'll be called a son of God. We're all called to do it. We're all called to take our role as a peacemaker in whatever situation you may be in. Doesn't mean it's going to be resolved. You might be pushed away. I, I think it's ironic, but I don't think it is ironic. The very next beatitude after blessed are the peacemakers, <laughs> blessed are those who are persecuted because of their righteousness. Just because peacemaking doesn't work the way we might think it, don't stop. God didn't ask, were you successful? He said, Did you, were you faithful to my ways? Were you faithful? Reminded again of our duty of peacemakers. That James 3.17 that we've read. I have it one more time. This is again from that messianic version of the Bible, says this, but the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceful, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality, without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in shalom by those who make shalom. Is God calling you to be a shalom maker, to be a peacemaker, Maybe there's somebody you're thinking of right now. Maybe there's a situation. Maybe there's somebody at work. Maybe there's somebody in your small group. Maybe there's somebody who's going to be coming to your house in about seven or eight days. <laughs> he says, I, I need to be a peacemaker. I need to be a peacemaker. I need to be the one who creates the climate for righteousness. I need to be the one who will not put some, push it under the rug, but will address it. But address it in a manner that is gentle and reasonable, full of mercy and good fruit, without partiality, without hypocrisy. I got to be that person. Somebody's got to do it. Somebody's got to do it. Be a child of God. Be a child of God. Let's stand for prayer. Lord, this morning we, uh, we come to you in a world of conflict. Some of our worlds are more conflicted than others. But we all deal with it in one way or another. And so, Father, this morning we hear your call to be a peacemaker. We see the example through Jesus Christ who gave himself to reconcile us to you. We hear the call of James we see the example set before us by Abigail. 
and we hear those words of Jesus. Blessed are the peacemakers. Help us this week, Lord, to identify those who we can share with this message. Maybe not preach it, but to live it, to be that peacemaker, to be the one that reaches out in purity and love to bring your peace to a conflicting situation. Lord, help us this Christmas, this Advent, to recognize our conflict, to deal with the conflict, and then to have less conflict because we've been peacemakers. And we'll give you praise for the victories that are won, for the peace that's been restored, for the shalom which we enjoy together with our brothers and sisters. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our benediction this morning is the words of St. Francis of Assisi. It says, Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. O divine master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive. It is in pardoning that we are pardoned. It is in dying that we are born again to eternal life. Amen. You're dismissed. Go in the peace of our Lord and Savior.